Hello, I'm Faisal Pervez, a South Asia analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. He was not your typical kidnapper. He was a very smart man, you know, and as I discuss in my author's notes at the end of the book, he did a good job planning, but things didn't go so well for him, and he didn't seem so smart by the time you get to the end of the book. Welcome to the Stratfor podcast, focused on geopolitics and world affairs from stratfor.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. One of the security issues we've explored in great detail here at Stratfor over the years and continue to watch closely with our ThreatLens team, is the kidnapping threat to high net worth individuals. In this episode of the podcast, we turn back the clock and take a look at one of the early and very high profile kidnapping cases in US history with author Philip Jett. Stratfor Chief Security Officer Fred Burton sits down with Jett to discuss his book, The Death of an Heir, Adolf Kors III, and the murder that rocked an American brewing dynasty. Thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here with Philip Jett, who has written a great book called The Death of an Heir, Adolf the III and the Murder that Rocked an American Brewing Dynasty. It was published by St. Martin's Press. Philip, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Fred. Thank you very much for having me. Philip, I read this book, and having been a former special agent and worked kidnapping cases, I was uh, overwhelmed with how good this book was, especially with the tick-tock of a kidnapping and one that took place uh, in 1960. I, I know from my own research and doing books from predominantly the 70s how difficult it is. So, First, uh, what made you want to write about uh, the kidnapping of Adolf Kors? Well, it's funny, you know, how things happen. I was out in Colorado. I go out there a couple times a year. I snow ski and I fly fish. And I took the tour at the Coors Brewing Company. I don't know if you've ever done that in Golden. I have, yeah. And I love it because they give you free beer at the end. (laughs) You know, so... On the way out, there's a hallway, and they have a lot of photos from the beginnings all the way to the present of the Coors Brewing Company with all the the Coors family members. And so I'm walking along looking, and I get to, you know, the 50s, 60s, and uh, the three sons, um, Ad Coors III, his brothers Bill and Joe Coors, and I noticed that Ad Coors disappeared from the wall, and that intrigued me. I, I don't know why it just did. And so when I, I was staying at the Golden Hotel and I went over there and I Googled uh, Ad Coors III and I found the story. And I'm like, that's a really good story. I haven't heard that. I've never heard that story. And um, the next thing I did almost immediately was I plugged it into Amazon to see if anyone had ever written a book. And no one had. And I'm like, okay, well, this is it. So that's how it happened. It was just kind of a strange situation. But I recognized the story immediately as what I thought would be a solid story. 
Well, you really have done a great job. Uh, I was fascinated with the amount of detail that uh, not only do you have footnoted, but uh, the the academic research, the investigative work, that uh, the gumshoe work to, to put the case together. And just having worked cases like this in the past, uh, there were certain things that uh, leaped out at me, such as the data point that you had in there that 30 years before the uh, kidnapping of AdCore's, uh, Mr. Core's name had surfaced uh, on a list to possibly be kidnapped. And my question, Philip, in, in looking at this, uh, why was the fixation on, on kidnapping um, ad cores? Was it because of the uh, the wealth that these individuals had in that time period, but but uh, you know the bad guys you know are looking at people to try to kidnap in in these days uh, of uh, gangsters and Tommy guns and so forth, uh, going back that far. But any uh, supposition on your part with why they were fixated on 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 brewers? You know, I think at that time, and as I recall, that was 1933, not long after the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. And um, in Colorado, it's funny, just taking it on a state-by-state basis, the kidnappers in Colorado, there were only a few people of great wealth. In fact, Adolf Kors Jr. uh, was one of them, but he had a best friend who was even wealthier than him, and he was kidnapped. And Adolf Kors Jr. was due to be kidnapped, but escaped that plot. Uh, so I think it was more simplistic. And in fact, the, the kidnapper that kidnapped Adolf Kors Jr.'s friend became the first public enemy number one, which that's I always thought that was interesting. He was the first number one public enemy. But I think it was more simplistic. I think it was just, you know, they had the money and they were well known in the area. And kidnappings back then, unlike today in the U.S., were, you know, pretty prevalent. And it was before all this technology we have, you just um, grab somebody, hop in a car and take off. And uh, so I think that's what it was. And that's what happened with Adolf Kors III. The person who kidnapped him had escaped prison from California. He goes to Denver and he's looking for easy money. And he come, finally comes up with the idea to kidnap someone. Well, the short list, you know, a Kors is on the short list and he chose Kors for whatever reason. Uh, in his mind, but it's primarily because he was wealthy family. That's very interesting. And and I know from just uh, dissecting these kinds of uh, cases and looking at it from an attack cycle or from a criminal attack cycle perspective, there, there's a phase called pre-operational surveillance, which you go into in great detail in the death of an heir, which to me as a practitioner and a former agent, I find most interesting because you discuss in the book and uh, how the kidnapper went about doing the surveillance, which uh, there's a tremendous amount of takeaways from the case from 1960 that I even think resonate today as to how kidnappers and bad guys uh, pick their targets. And, And when you look at this kidnapper that did the abduction of uh, Ad Coors uh, at the time, who was uh, the CEO of Coors, correct? Yes, CEO, chairman of the board. He was a little bit different. Uh, this was a uh, a guy that had been in college and a Fulbright scholar, correct? That's correct. 
That was one of the things that troubled the FBI and Mrs. Coors, Ed Coors III's wife. You know, you tend to stereotype these folks and uh, you expect them to have a long uh, criminal rap sheet and uh, maybe some tattoos and, you know, be a scar here or there. But he was uh, very uh, professional looking, well-spoken, well-educated, uh, had a, an IQ that tested out at 148, uh, was a Fulbright scholar, and, you know, things went awry for him. And uh, so he was not your typical kidnapper. He was a, a very smart man, you know, and as I discuss in my author's notes at the end of the book, uh, he he did a, a good job planning but things didn't go so well for him, and he didn't seem so smart by the time you get to the end of the book. Right, right. Well, uh, he certainly had the wherewithal uh, to pull this off. And what I also find interesting is the, you know, here you have the emergence of uh, the FBI under Hoover that recognized immediately that this was a case they needed to jump in on. And I think you painted a a, a very good picture of the local uh, and state turf issues that surfaced uh, surrounding the kidnapping. And uh, one of the other things that uh, I data mined out of it, which uh, struck me as very interesting, I actually chuckled, was uh, the FBI labeled this case uh, CORNAP, <laughs> uh, obviously for uh, CORES and then the kidnapping. And and one mm-hmm. of the cases that, that I worked in the 80s was called LEBNAP, and and uh, so uh, I picked that out. So uh, that kind of detail to me was just absolutely um, fascinating. We'll get back to our conversation with Fred Burton and author Philip Jett in just one moment. But if you're interested in learning more about evolving kidnapping risks, we'll include some related links to Stratfor analysis in our show notes. If you're not already a Stratfor Worldview member, you can learn about individual, team, and enterprise memberships at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. We'll also share a link to the recording of a Stratfor Threat Lens webcast with Fred Burton and VP of Tactical Analysis Scott Stewart discussing the threat of high-value target kidnappings to executives and their families. And if you're interested in reading Philip Jett's book, The Death of an Heir, Adolf Kors Third and the Murder That Rocked an American Brewing Dynasty, you'll find that link in our show notes as well. Now, back to our conversation with Stratfor's Fred Burton and Philip Jett. In the course of doing this, uh, Philip, what's the one thing that you uncovered that totally surprised you? Oh, my. Um, that's a good... You know, I have never been asked that question. Um, I guess the thing that surprised me the most was... When I finished everything, I was surprised that the kidnapper did such a poor job of covering his trail. It took a long time for the FBI to find him, but it seemed like once things went wrong, he fell apart. And I thought, you know, as I was researching him on the front end, I felt like, you know, this is a smart guy, cool customer. You know, everyone said he was cold-eyed and unemotional, but... The thing that surprised me the most was how he did things that one of my teenage sons probably would know better. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Although sometimes I wonder, you know, uh, (laughs) but I think that was the most surprising thing to me. And I mentioned that at the end of the book is uh, he did such a really poor job. Uh, You know, he didn't change his alias. He didn't change his appearance. 
he would still, you know, when he would sign uh, forms to, you know, get a job or to get a, in a boarding house, he would use his alias and he would use his last place of residence. And, you know, that's not what you typically do when you're trying to cover your trail. Without a doubt. And uh, the other thing to me that uh, stepping back, being a product of having been born in the 50s, uh, was uh, looking at Ad Coors, uh on the morning of his abduction, was driving that uh, 1959 white over turquoise uh, international harvester travel all. I, I think oh, yeah. uh, I that, that would be vehicle. the... Oh, I love that vehicle, too. I'd love to try to get my hands on one today. Uh, <laughs> were you able to figure out what happened to that victim's car? I never tracked that to see where it ended up. Um, I, I must, you know, I must digress. I met my son uh, recently over in East Tennessee in Knoxville, and we went over to Gatlinburg, and we went into uh, some kind of museum they have there about crime, and uh, they had... OJ's Bronco there. <laughs> I'm thinking of all the places in the world for OJ's Bronco to end up. It ended up in the museum outside <laughs> of Knoxville. So, you know, I, I have no idea where this uh, vehicle ended up, but that's a good question. Now you may, you may have sparked something in me and I'll have to go try to locate it. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm just curious. I, I had a similar kind of, uh, case and book, uh, from the seventies and, uh, I looked forever for uh, the car, and I was not able to find it. I think it ended up on an auction block somewhere, and and Lord Uh, knows where from there. But that was such a unique kind of vehicle. I was just curious if it went back to the Coors family or if it ended up in a museum. Yeah. No, you know, when I did my research, I pulled up the vehicle. Of course, I had photos of the actual vehicle, but I also pulled up photos, you know, from – auctions like Meekum's auctions and things like that to see other vehicles that were very similar. And I wanted to see the interior. I wanted to see the seat cushions. I wanted to see the dashboard, everything, you know, so I could just get the feel of that vehicle. And, you know, I drove a Land Rover for a long time and I just love those kind of vehicles. And the uh, selection point for the kidnapping struck me as uh there's a brilliance and simplicity with uh, how the actual kidnapping took place, not only the pre-operational surveillance of Mr. Coors, but uh, how the kidnapper chose that bridge for this to take place on. Uh, and the ruse operation was um, brilliant in many ways to things kind of went south. I won't spoil it for those of you that haven't read the book yet, but uh, to me, that was a good choice of where to carry out this kidnapping. It was, and it happened by accident. Uh, you know, he had uh, he'd spent two and a half years doing his surveillance and planning, and he initially had planned to kidnap Ad Coors in Denver because the, the Coors family had lived in uh, a nice subdivision there in Denver. And during his surveillance, I'm assuming he saw a moving van one day, and they had moved out to a little area called Morrison, south of Denver, and and built a house on a ranch. And so he had to scrap, you know, all of his surveillance and start over. And so, you know, he's out in this um, remote area watching Coors movements. And uh, it so happened that a stretch of highway that uh, Adolph Coors drove every day got closed for construction. So the detour 
took them along this little desolate one, you know, lane gravel road that crossed a one lane bridge. So he recognized, you know, the, he, the kidnapper recognized this was his opportunity. The family of the kidnapper, I'm, I'm struck as I read your story uh, that clearly uh, the, the father of the kidnapper is really struggling with uh, what went wrong here and a loving dad that, you know, finds it hard to believe for a while that uh, his son has, has done this. But uh, any sense on your part as to what caused the kidnapper to initially get so violent, uh, engage in that first murder? You know, I couldn't find anything definitive. In fact, you know, the kidnapper had murdered someone in California. I think he was 21, 22 years old at the time, uh, his first murder. And um, they got psychiatrists to review him. They interviewed um, people in college, his professors, and they just said something seemed to have snapped in him. But during my research, I found that even when he was a youngster, he was shoplifting and doing things that were pretty um, dangerous. And as one of his friends said, you know, he, he even said, you know, he wondered how it would feel to kill someone. You know, I'm not so sure it was snapping or he just came of age. The one thing that happened during that time period was his mother died and fell from a second story balcony there at home. And the kidnapper was the only one home with her. And there's a part of me that suspects that he pushed her, but I, I don't know that for sure. Just based on some statements that I saw, he uh, either felt very guilty about it uh, because he was supposed to repair the balcony or he may have done more. It's difficult to tell. But to answer your question, you know, um, what truly happened in his mind, only he knew. The fact that he did not get the death penalty and he is eventually let out of prison and is living this obscure life for a while uh, until the end, to me, is uh, also fascinating. Oh, yeah. You know, today we tend to think, uh, you know, you kill someone, especially someone important, you're going to be in prison for life more than, more than likely, or you may be paroled when you're very old. And um, I was shocked that the term of sentence he uh, served in Colorado at that time, in order to get the death penalty, uh, you had to have an eyewitness or a confession. And there wasn't uh, an eyewitness, and he was not going to confess. He wasn't that stupid. So he was given life, a life, you know, it's funny, they gave, said uh, life sentence said hard labor. Well, you know, he wasn't doing any hard labor. And he ended up being paroled only after about 16 years. And the Coors family and the governor came out and, you know, put pressure on the parole board, so they rescinded it. And But he was, again, paroled the following year. And so he served only about 18 years. And so when he walked out the door for the last time, he was 50 years old and just stayed there in Denver and lived uh, in Denver. You know, I have heard from many sources. I didn't I don't think I put this in the book that the Coors family kept an eye on him. They never did trust him for the rest of his life. Yeah, and not surprising that they would be uh, concerned about uh, an individual like this that uh, had been engaged in such uh, violent actions. And and the one takeaway, and, and I know this myself, uh, Philip, from just talking to victims over the years from 
various terrorist attacks and events and so forth that clearly uh, this event devastated the Corps' family. It did. It did. And, it, you know, it still lingers to this day. I, my father died when I was very young and uh, a tragic situation. And, you know, uh, for me, it, it, people will say something to me. They'll say, oh, I'm sorry. You know, and I'm like, well, for me, it's almost as old as the pyramids. You know, it's just happened so long ago. But it, for the Coors family, it's funny having talked to friends of the family and having communicated with one of the Coors uh, it's still very difficult for them after all these years, and it was certainly difficult at the time. And Mrs. Coors, Ed Coors III's wife, she never recovered, as you'll see in the book. And, uh, you know, she became an alcoholic, and and she ended up dying uh, younger than she should have. And, um, I mean, she loved her husband, and they had a good family. I mean, when he was kidnapped, they had four children at home, ages 10 to 18, and so they had a very good life going out there in Colorado. And, you know, it was snatched away one day by this guy that nobody had ever heard of before. Wow. I know. I can I can only imagine uh, the uh, the devastation inside the family. And and just from a corporate security perspective, uh, looking at this kind of case from the long term and if there's any takeaway from these kinds of horrific events, though, Philip, is uh, folks like you and me and, and others in the the business of keeping people alive and trying to protect high net worth families or uh, those that are in the spotlight every day. Uh, you've done a great service in uh, putting this book together, in my assessment, because there's so many different things buried in the story that can be used uh, from a proactive perspective to try to keep people alive. So, uh, you know, I applaud you for their efforts there. And I, I know that's probably not your motivation for why you did the book. But uh, as I read it, I, I took away several things that I uh, took notes about and shared with our analysts here at uh, Stratfor. Well, that's great. No, I, you're correct. That was not my intention in writing the book. Although as I wrote the book, there would be facts that would come out and I would be like, you know, that's interesting. I'd never really thought about that before. And uh, as a danger or as, you know, a, a sign that something might be amiss. So that was certainly a, a benefit from the book. But my main intent, of course, was to tell the story. But also I tried very hard to tell it in a way that would bring light to what the family dealt with, you know, and particularly Mrs. Kors, the wife of the, the victim. I wanted people to understand how difficult it was for someone like her. And, you know, one of the, you know, you mentioned earlier, asked earlier, what was the surprising thing? You're very familiar with this. I was not, I hadn't really given any thought, but it's just the idea of all the uh, extortionists that come out of the woodwork and, you know, piggyback onto a kidnapping situation. And I've since learned that that's very common. But in, in her case, you know, and she would have to answer the phone every time someone called. So every fake kidnapper wanting money to extort money, she would have to talk to them. And I thought, you know, how torturous that would be when you're waiting to hear from the real kidnapper about, you know, your husband's condition and when you can get him home, that you have to deal with these other people. To me, that was just very uh, sad and cruel thing. Yeah, I can't imagine the the torture that she had to put up with and and dealing with that. And then, to me, the uh, the historic development of you know the FBI handling this kind of notorious kidnapping is 
uh, clearly one for the ages. And I, I think what you've done too is shine a good spotlight on, of course, everybody's heard about the, you know, the infamous Lindbergh baby kidnapping, but, uh, this case was certainly, um, from that kind of national stature, uh, right up there. And, uh, then, you know, the fledgling FBI and, and Hoover recognizing that this is something that, uh, he needed to jump on and, and get the G-man involved to me was, interesting just from that federal law enforcement combating kidnapping in this in this era right right you know it was um that was another thing i found interesting was that since the Lindbergh baby kidnapping this was the biggest kidnapping case the fbi had been involved in more manpower you know more resources than had ever taken place and what blew my mind was that to have been you know such a big case in fact J. Edgar Hoover said that the kidnapper was the most wanted man since John Dillinger, that this story just disappeared, you know, to have been such a huge manhunt. Because what I've found is when you look in history from kidnappings in the U.S., you know, you've got Lindbergh kidnapping. Everybody, you know, knows Patty Hearst. Now we've got the the movie about J. Paul Getty's grandson. And, you know, Frank Sinatra Jr. is in there somewhere. Some people, you know, they know those but they'd never heard of this one. And this one really was bookended by Lindbergh and Patty Hearst. And the fact that it was just lost, you know, to history, you know, I'm proud. One thing I'm proud of is that I was able to unearth it and bring it to light. Well, Philip, you should be. Uh, I think that uh, you did a great job with this story and uh, I appreciate uh, the fact that you've taken the time to chat with me today about it and, Again, uh, for our listeners uh, that are interested in this story, it's called The Death of an Heir, uh, Adolf Kors III and the Murder That Rocked an American Brewing Dynasty, and it's published by St. Martin's Press. Uh, I would encourage you all to read it, and I'm sure like uh, all authors, uh, Philip would love to have some feedback on the story. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat with uh, me today. Thank you, Fred. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, I, I appreciate your your time, and and particularly the the kind words coming from someone with uh, your past uh, experience. and And it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much. And that wraps up another episode of the Stratford Podcast. If you'd like to read Jet's book on the kidnapping and murder of Adolf Kors III, we'll include a link in the show notes. And you can learn more about Jet at philipjet.com. We'll also share links to some related analysis on Stratfor Worldview, as well as a recorded webcast briefing with Stratfor Threat Lenses Scott Stewart and Fred Burton discussing the threat of high-value target kidnappings to executives and their families today. If you're a Worldview member, you can continue this conversation in our members-only forum, and a full transcript of this conversation is available on our podcast page. If you're not already a member, be sure to visit us at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe to learn more about individual, team, and enterprise-level access. And if you have a moment, consider leaving us a review of the podcast on iTunes or wherever you subscribe. Or if you'd like to reach us directly with a question or an idea about a future episode of the podcast, you can email us at podcast at stratfor.com or give us a call at one 512 744-4300 extension 3917 to leave a message. We always appreciate your feedback. Thanks once again for joining us and for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis and forecasting that reveal the underlying significance and future implications of emerging world events follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. <laughs>